Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Kristen Day. She is the executive director of Democrats for Life of America. She is the author of Democrats for Life, Pro-Life Politics, and the Silence Majority. I wanted to talk to Kristen because this past week, there was a leaked Supreme Court document about overturning Roe v. Wade. Now, granted, it's just an initial draft. It may not be the final, but still, I think it was important to talk with Kristen about this. Number one, because she's a woman, and number two, because she is a part of the Democrat Party, and she stood for life within that party, and I think she has a very interesting perspective. As right now, we're seeing a lot of Democrats really upset with this leaked initial opinion And is it true that the sky is falling, as they say, or what? What is going on? And Kristen can help us make sense of that from her perspective and also her understanding of some policies at the state level, as well as at the federal level with the Hyde Amendment. Like, what happens to that if indeed Roe v. Wade is overturned? We also delve into what is called, I guess, or considered the flawed reasoning of Roe v. Wade. And how is it that the court can overturn Roe v. Wade? Does it also mean that Women's voting rights are now up for grab. Does it mean the Brown v. Board of Education, which talked about desegregating schools, could that be overturned? Interracial marriage. I mean, what is this precedent setting, turning over this precedent of Roe v. Wade? What does it mean for other precedents? We also deal with some people say they're fearful for poor women because they won't be able to access abortion in their state and don't have the funds to travel out of state, that they will do something that's really dangerous, maybe even more dangerous than abortion. And they frame it as really an issue for poor Black women, poor women of color. And I give my take on that as a Black woman, as a pro-life Black woman, how that concern is presented and how I interpret that. And I'm hoping that this conversation helps to dispel a lot of myths and gives people a clearer view of what a post-Roe world could look like. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. You may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast. And that's okay. That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by getting a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Kristen Day is up next.
Kristen, I'm so glad you could join me on the Gloria Purvis podcast. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's always good talking with you. I know it. I was like, we got to get together at some point <laughs> outside of this. But, um, you know, for people who don't know you, I'm sure they're interested in knowing, you know, what's it like being a pro-life Democrat? It has become increasingly difficult over the past right, 10 years since we passed Obamacare. Mm. It's the hostility within the party against pro-life voices has been very discouraging. But we do see a lot of bright lights. I think Trinae McGee up in Connecticut is amazing. And we have Angie Hatton in Kentucky and Senator Katrina Jackson in Louisiana. So we have a lot of bright, shining stars. Uh, Also, Pastor Chris Butler, who's running for Congress in Illinois. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of really new, upcoming, wonderful pro-life Democratic voices who are joining this cause to take back the party from this far extreme abortion agenda. So then how did you arrive at this position of political affiliation with Democrats? Yeah, so I, when I was in college, I became a Democrat and I started getting active with the Michigan State University Democrats. Mm -hmm. And at that time, they told you, and I think they still do today, if you're a Democrat, you have to support abortion and you have to support a woman's right to choose was the big phrase back then. Mm Mm-hmm. So I just took up that bandwagon. I went along with the party, but I had this voice in the back of my head saying, I think this is wrong. And I know that life begins, you know, in the womb Mm -hmm. and I would never do that myself. Mm -hmm. I would never take the life of my child knowing that it was part of me. And so I had sort of this, you know, conflict until I went to work on Capitol Hill And I had worked for a couple members until I went with Congressman Jim Barsha, who is a Mm. Democrat from Michigan. And being the new person in the office, the staff gave me the abortion issue because they thought that was the worst issue to (laughs) handle for, you know, it wasn't a very fun issue to handle. Mm -hmm. And I found out why, because he was pro-life. And no one in the office wanted to handle the abortion issue from that angle. I was so excited. (laughs) Good. And it made me realize, you know, I can be pro-life in this party. And Mm -hmm. it was such an eye-opening light bulb experience that I ran with it. I was, it was exceptional. And I worked with my boss on the issue and he became the co-chair of the pro-life caucus. Oh, wow. And we did great work to advance the pro-life cause under his leadership. It was, Mm -hmm. it was really, really exciting and led me to this job and to this moment. Wow, that's, I mean, talk about baptism by fire, but also, you know, I'm glad that you had that experience because I'm sure it helped shape you for being the executive director of Democrats for Life of America now. So glad that you have that. You know, so I am curious, what was your reaction when you first learned there was a leak of the initial draft and what the actual outcome of that initial draft was, you know, overturning Roe v. Wade? Well, you know, I had mixed feelings because on the one hand, we've been working to overturn Roe v. Wade for decades. Yeah. So it was very exciting to see this in print that we could possibly overturn Roe v. Wade. But at the same time, disappointment. You know, one person felt like it was their responsibility to advance their own personal agenda to put this out there. Mm-hmm. So whoever did, I hope they are brought to justice. I hope they 
do find the person that did release this because it does send, you know, it's a dangerous precedent to start leaking things from the Supreme Court. It's an institution of integrity. Mm. And I actually did go watch a case two years ago. My husband had a case before the Supreme Court. And to go in to that institution and sit there and watch the justices and the respect within the room, you can't even lean over on someone's shoulder and close your eyes. They'll come over to you and say, wake up. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. So you think the leak would be harmful because it would undo some of that decorum and integrity? And why would you think that'd be harmful, leaking this information? It will give the appearance that the justices could be persuadable. Mm. And, you know, these are the greatest legal minds. And they are supposed to not be persuadable. They're supposed to look at not how they feel or what the country feels. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to look at the documents and decide what does the law say mm-hmm. and rule based on law, not on feelings or emotion or what they think is best. Mm. Okay. that You know, I get that. I, I get it. Because, you know, I will tell you, my initial reaction was I was like, this is a lie. Ain't no way. <laughs> I was like, somebody lying. This can't be. And then, <laughs> you know, and then I was looking and I was like, Oh, okay. Well, this is an initial opinion. Okay. And then I started, to be honest with you, I started imagining a sea change in the country in education, how we treat women who are pregnant and mothering in business, in the military, in church, and just everything that we have an opportunity to really make this an actual culture that welcomes and celebrates every mom, prospective mom, and her children. And that we also will be, frankly, shaming men for not standing by their obligation, their responsibility. And then I got on social media (laughs) and saw that people thought the sky was falling. So I think what I noticed is that people are like, oh my gosh, this is 50 years of established law. How could this be overturned? And so just a number of things with that. But so could you help us like understand the grounds in the leaked document for overturning Roe v. Wade? But, you know, I want to go back to, mm. uh, I think to your, about like, this is a moment, a changing moment for our nation to mm-hmm. you know, change the way we treat women who have unplanned pregnancy. And mm-hmm. I agree with you. That was one of the things that I was talking about the day after when we were down in the Supreme Court, I was having conversations with people. And I think the reason they believe that the sky is falling is because they truly believe that abortion is going to be illegal tomorrow Mm. if Roe v. Wade is overturned. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's 50 years, but there's a patchwork of laws in all the states right now. Mm -hmm. You know, we have the Texas law, which bans abortion after heartbeat. We have Connecticut just passed a law allowing non-doctors to perform abortions. And uh, I think New Jersey just passed a a dangerous abortion law as well, and Maryland. So we have these extremes where people are so nervous about Roe being overturned that the states are going these very opposite directions. So I Mm. think this is an opportunity for us to step back and look at ways where we can really make a difference in women's lives. And I agree with you, holding men responsible. Child support enforcement is a big failure for women who are raising their children and being abandoned by men. 
Oh, yeah. So I think that's something that should be a top priority in this new world. Oh, yeah. But again, you know, it's going to be different in every state. Yeah. Every state's going to be different. And initially, not a lot will change. California is still going to have one of the highest abortion rates in the nation. New York, New Jersey, mm-hmm. there's still mm-hmm. going to be more and more abortions performed there. Yeah, well, and there are plenty of states that want to position themselves as abortion sanctuaries. I mean, I did think the sky's falling kind of thing was, I'm like, this is, y'all don't understand what happens. According to the opinion, the initial opinion, who knows what the final one's going to be. But if the initial opinion is what carries the day, you know, just gets thrown back to the states. And when you read through the document, you know, regarding the established law being overturned, you know, they gave examples like we've done that before. In Brown versus Board of Education, a court repudiated the separate but equal doctrine, which had allowed states to maintain racially segregated schools and other facilities. And the court overruled Plessy versus Ferguson, along with six other Supreme Court precedents that had applied to the separate but equal rule. So it's not like they haven't done this before. But there's a fear, you know, that I've seen people say like, well, what about women's rights to vote? Can they overrule that? And I'm like, no, because that was an amendment to the Constitution, the 19th Amendment. But what do you think of like the fear of, you know, people saying women are going to lose the right to vote? They're going to overturn all these other Supreme Court decisions that people have mentioned, Brown v. Board of Education, other civil rights things like interracial marriage with Loving versus Virginia, that that's going to be overturned. And people concerned that they're even going to overturn Obergefell, which, as some people say, redefined marriage in the United States. What's your take on that? Well, one of the funniest responses I heard to bringing up the Loving case was, I don't think Clarence Thomas will vote against that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Oh, my gosh. Right. Considering, right, that he's actually in married to someone of a a different race. That's a a good point. And also, actually, in the opinion, he addresses why all of these things are not like this Dobbs case. And while they may in some way have reference some of the ruling in Casey or whatnot, they are of a different category of laws, a different argument in those cases. And that what Dobbs, the case that's in front of Supreme Court, brings up is the right of the unborn to life, whereas in Roe, they talk about it as a potential life. And so the subject matter of this case as it pertains to the Constitution, is very different from the subject matter of the other ones. But um, I'm no lawyer. This is just my reading and understanding of the uh, opinion. So I thought it was interesting. And look, he already addressed the very things that people are saying, oh, could those be overturned? And in this draft opinion, it gives reasons why that wouldn't apply to those cases. Right. And I think second on that, somebody would have to bring a case to overturn those things. And it would have to get through all the lower courts Mm-hmm. all the way up. And then the Supreme Court would ha- actually have to accept it and mm-hmm. look at that. And so many cases come to the Supreme Court every year that they don't hear. True. So they're very, very specific about what they do. So I doubt these fears that people are putting who would have any chance of even making it to the Supreme Court because there are very clear laws in place now that protect interracial marriage or oh, yeah. the other things that they're fearing. Yeah, um, But I think the one thing with Roe too is... Science has changed dramatically since they first wrote that opinion. We know now. We can see into the womb. We can see those babies kicking around. So it's a very different world that we live in now. 
yeah. as far as opportunities for women too, and the opportunity to have paid leave, have accommodations in the workforce yeah, and support to stay in school. So there are some amazing things to help women now. You know, that is such a good point. And that is also addressed in the initial draft opinion about, you know, how things have changed for women. I mean, he says both sides make important policy arguments, but he's saying supporters of Roe v. Wade or Planned Parenthood versus Casey has to show that the court has the authority to weigh those arguments and decide how abortion may be regulated in the states. And he just says, you know, they haven't made that showing, and that's why they're returning the power to weigh those arguments to the people and their elected representatives. One of the things that they said that was flawed in Roe is that Roe made all these proclamations, but then didn't show the evidence for these proclamations. And they said Roe was written really in a way that made it look more like a legal statute. Like they took this case in Roe and they established for all the states rules about pregnancy. Like, And these were none of the things that in the case itself that either party was asking for. So they broke it up in the trimesters, introduced this idea of viability, and then instated all these rules. And they're like, that's not our job. That is not the job of the Supreme Court to make law. They referenced that as well in the opinion. And they even said in Planned Parenthood versus Casey that the court revisited Roe and it was split three ways. Two justices were like, well, we don't want to change Roe at all. Four wanted to overrule the decision in its entirety. And the three remaining justices who they said jointly signed the controlling opinion took a third position while their opinion did not get this endorsed Roe's reasoning, and that's because everybody thought it was awful, and even hinted that one or more of the authors even had reservations about whether the Constitution protects a right to abortion, but they decided that, well, stare decisis, right, which we have to respect prior decisions to be followed in most instances. And so they said, okay, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, we will adhere to what they call Roe's central holding that a state may not constitutionally protect fetal life before viability. Well, you know, some people will say stuff like, well, interracial marriage is not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution. You know, with the abortion issue, the court actually created a constitutional right to abortion. They created something that wasn't there. With the issue of interracial marriage, they just said you can't discriminate it. They didn't create a constitutional right to interracial marriage. Right. You know, with slavery, too, they overturned. They didn't create anything new. They just said, you can't prohibit interracial marriage. Like, we have marriage, and there's no constitutional reason to exclude people of different races from being married. Or the same sexes from marrying. So it was the same sort of, but they didn't create a new law. Right. Saying that you, everybody must do that. You you have to give women the right to kill their babies, is what they, they said it's a constitutional right. We'll be right back. So I'm not going to use legal speak here, but my understanding is the flawed reasoning behind Roe v. Wade is that they use bad history. They couldn't actually tie it to the Constitution. And then the opinion itself was crafted more like legislation rather than an opinion. And what I mean by it was crafted like legislation is they developed these rules around pregnancy, broke them up into quarters, into trimesters, excuse me, and then introduced this notion of viability. And it was more like uh, something that a legislature would write and then impose that on all the states. 
And they're like, that's not how we do things in the Supreme Court. So again, faulty history, not really being able to tie it back to the Constitution, either enumerated or unenumerated substantive rights, as they call them, meaning they didn't show it being tied to the text or the history or legislative regime of the United States. And the only things that were in existence in terms of the legal regime in the United States were state laws prohibiting abortion as early as 1878. Roe just seems to be made up out of something that usually isn't coming to bear on uh, Supreme Court decisions. So leaving it up to the people to determine this matter. Some people say it's a moral matter. They do refer to it like that also in the opinion. How do you think this is a unique moral matter in terms of, you know, comparison to the other issues that, you know, were mentioned? With the issue of abortion, we're talking about two people. We're talking about the rights of women and also the rights of a new human being. Mm-hmm. And so we can't ignore the fact that there are two people involved here. And we have a hashtag that we push out there and we say, choose both. Mm. We should not be in a situation where we're pitting a woman against a child and deciding who lives and who dies. We should never be in that situation. You know, with the pro-choice side, they always say to me, well, what if the mother's life is in danger? Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, in those very rare circumstances, we should do everything we can to save both. Right. You know, that is always the first thing. And I would just say this. We don't use exceptions to make law for everybody. Like, it just seems to me that it'd be strange to make law for exceptions. Right. Like, that we're going to allow this thing because of these rare exceptions, rather than saying we have this law and then we'll look at the exceptions, you know? That's one of the things that the abortion rights advocates put out there. Is saying, well, now all these women are going to have to keep these dead babies in That's their wombs. And it's just not true. You know, there's something else which I have to admit. I really don't get this whole people being afraid that women can't access abortion in their own state, so they have to go a long distance and it's cost prohibitive. And women in poverty, you know, it's cost prohibitive to go. And, you know, and therefore they may get alternative life threatening ways of procuring an abortion. And here's why that doesn't hold for me. I'm like, I don't think people really understand how dangerous abortions really are. Perforated uteruses, women do die. Sepsis. I'm thinking of Tanya Reeves who died after receiving an abortion at Planned Parenthood. But this, I guess the fear is if it's not legal in their state and they can't go to a state where it is legal, that they may get seek to terminate the pregnancy in a way that is threatens the life of this woman. What are your thoughts on that? That is our biggest challenge. And that is why right now, or even yesterday, we need to make sure that women know about every available resource available to them to support them through their pregnancy. When Texas passed their law, the heartbeat law, they also Mm -hmm. put $100 million of funding into their alternatives to abortion program. And the pregnancy centers started doing even more to try to, to reach women who were pregnant, who needed help. And the one thing that I saw from the other side was their solution was not to help women who were pregnant. Their solution was to shut down or send women out of state for abortion. 
And I issued a challenge to Planned Parenthood at the time. Why don't you pivot? Pivot what you're doing. Instead of providing abortion to pregnant women, why don't you compete with the pregnancy centers for their business to do better for women? You know, start providing diapers, start providing parenting classes, start providing clothing, diapers, job training, housing, and all these things that women would prefer over abortion, you know, prefer that support over abortion. But instead, they created an abortion fund to pay for people to go out of state for abortions, which is not the solution either. And I'm hearing from the pro-life side that our work is just beginning because we need to increase this network of support. And we've seen all these wonderful pregnancy centers pop up all over the nation. You know, we outnumber abortion clinics now on the support side. So we just need to keep that up and keep making sure that we can connect women with the resources they need. I have to also say, I've been also annoyed at how I see the idea of a poor Black woman actually giving birth as the greatest harm to her life is just insulting, you know, because it, to me, underneath that message, somewhere buried in there is, it's far worse for her to give birth to another poor child than it is for us to actually try to help her have that child. <laughs> you know what I mean? I have to say, as I look at some of the, oh, but poor women, because, you know, poor women are now the the rallying cry for why this is a terrible thing. You know, hypothetically, if Roe v. Wade gets overturned, it keeps putting forth this poor woman, this poor woman, this poor woman. And often the poor black woman is used as the mascot for why Roe v. Wade should not be overturned without really, you know, delving into the messaging behind that. And what is that really saying to us? And what kind of attitude is it, frankly, conditioning us to have to poor people, to poor children, to poor women, to Black women. And so uh, a lot of this really bothers me when I think about social conditioning around who should live and who shouldn't. Yeah, no, I've been hearing that a lot more. We saw the debate up in Connecticut spoke a lot about the abortion in the Black community with Trine McGee leading the charge there. Mm-hmm. But we also had this discussion up in New Jersey when they were passing their extreme abortion measures. And I did bring up the fact that one of the members said that, well, poor women need access to abortion. And I said, did you know that poor women are overrepresented in abortion right now? Yeah. So what mm-hmm. they need is support. And what are you doing for women who don't want abortion who are poor? You know, where's mm-hmm. the equity for poor mm-hmm. women and rich, to get the same opportunity to parent for as rich women? Yeah. I was having this discussion among other um, Black pro-lifers, and we were, it's not like our community is some abortion-loving community. It is when you, the only option that you're getting is abortion, and you, all your other material needs aren't being met, and just the stresses of life, jobs, all this stuff, and the only thing that you're being, you know, abortion, 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 and then also promoting it as a right and a freedom and really, I was just having this discussion with Gina Vides from the Archdiocese of Los Angeles that it really is reproductive coercion. Mm-hmm. It's not reproductive freedom. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, that goes hand in hand with not trying to hear from these women who, like, you know, had abortions, why they oftentimes feel coerced and having no other choice but to do that. And that's the other thing that they always say, well, rich women can run out and go get abortions. And I'm like, you know, of all the things that rich women can do, I bet you. 
these women who are forced into abortion, probably like if I had the same choices of a rich woman, I would like to have her housing. I would like to have the food, the education, the stability before I have that, you know, running out and getting abortion. You know, they want them to be equal to rich women in terms of having abortion, but not necessarily equal to rich women in the kind of material stability that they have. Mm-hmm. And I think we really need to revisit that whole framing of the argument. And, you know, as a Catholic, you don't have a right to something that runs contrary to your nature. So abortion is not a right properly understood as Catholics because why? It runs counter to the nature of a woman, of the female. Our bodies are made to get pregnant and bring forth new life. Mm. That's just the part of being female. And so to say I have a right to frustrate, is that the word? Or a right to try to undo what is in nature, you know, how my body operates just is not a right properly understood. That's not a right because it's contrary to the nature of the human person. So I think we as Catholics, and we need to really think about that when people turn around and say something's a right. We need to actually really examine that. And um, I think we've also, as a society, become lazy, I guess, in terms of actually trying to consider what women need to thrive and flourish. We're so wed to things as they are, we wouldn't be We've been closed to thinking about remaking our society. And I I think, do we need a pregnancy pandemic? Because it was only the (laughs) pandemic that made us realize we could actually do work remotely because before it was like, oh, it's not possible. It's not possible. But yeah, guess what? We did it for two years and, and the world didn't come to a grinding halt. We were able to work remotely. So I'm saying we need to think about how can we continue on in a way that makes everything conducive for, again, for women who are pregnant, for women who are mothers, to fully participate in the economy, in life, in education, in the military, all that stuff. I think it would look radically different. I want people to start thinking and dreaming about that and maybe even start writing and advocating, like, how would you rebuild it, you know? And I also want to ask all those women, you know, since nobody wants to do the survey, let's ask them, you know, what would you have needed to keep that child? That was part of what we wanted to know. What would have helped you make a decision to keep your child, mm-hmm. what kind of support would you need? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one other thing that I'm thinking about because the Hyde Amendment, which has been mm-hmm. under attack, and for those who are unaware, the Hyde Amendment does not give federal funding to abortion. Is that right? Is that the right way to say it? Right. Yep. It was Henry Hyde and then my favorite congressman, Jim Oberstar from Minnesota. They drafted it together. Mm. It was a bipartisan amendment. It's called the Hyde Amendment. They needed a Republican sponsor at the time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so it prohibits taxpayer funding of abortion, except in the cases of rape, incest, and life with a mother. And it's Mm -hmm. been intact since 1977. So we fought very hard to keep it this last year because it was a high priority by the Democratic leadership to eliminate Hyde and allow taxpayer funding of abortion. But we're very proud that we kept it one more year and we're going to keep fighting. So let's say that this draft opinion ends up being the final opinion and Roe v. Wade is overturned. How does that affect the Hyde Amendment, which is federal funding, if they're not no longer saying it at a federal level, abortion is it for every state? How do you think that might affect Hyde? So we'll still have to fight to keep Hyde intact because there will be states, many states, who will still allow abortion. Mm-hmm. And you know, even if Texas keeps its law, abortion will still be allowed for the first 
eight weeks in Mississippi, abortion will still be allowed for the first 15 weeks. So there still will be Medicaid funding of abortion out there. And if we allow federal funding, that will still continue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I keep thinking abortion isn't 100% out of the question. It's just that we have to be ready for what's going to be happening at the state level. And frankly, in a lot of these areas, again, these same poor communities are going to be well-funded for abortion, unfortunately. Let me ask you just a few more things before we wrap. You know, you made some suggestions about what could happen in the state legislatures. Do you think there's anything else we need to do to create a culture of life? I think we need to look at the whole life. Mm. And, you know, we look at the death penalty. There's been an uptick in death penalty and focusing on taking the lives of those incarcerated. I think we need to look at one of our members was here for home health care, lobbying for home health care and more support for workers in the home health care industry. Mm. And really looking at how we treat those in the twilight of life and how we treat our elderly. Right. The home health care workers, they're heroes. They go and visit our elderly and those with dementia or Alzheimer's and take care of these men and women who deserve support. Right. At the end of their lives. At absolutely. the end of their lives. And the home health care workers were cut out of the COVID funds. Mm-hmm. They didn't get any relief. They wow. couldn't work because they weren't allowed to go visit their patients. So they didn't get paid. Oh, wow. It was just disastrous in the way that we treat those workers. You know, we just have to really, as a community, look at how we treat people. Right. If we discuss money, they really need to look at redirecting that money to address the roots of poverty, Mm -hmm. to address the things that might pressure a woman into thinking her only choice is abortion. And how can we make things, again, more conducive for women in the world? And I think we have to really look at how everything has been modeled before with, I hate to say it, a male Protestant work ethic, you know, (laughs) instead we need to look at how would work and education and whatnot look like if it were built to include women in all stages of our lives, from pregnancy to motherhood to the end of life, all of that. Yep. We have a lot of work to do, but there are good people out there that are fighting this fight with us. And I look forward to rising to the challenge of promoting this new post-world world where we do provide options and opportunity for women. Amen. Thank you so much, Kristen, for joining me on the podcast to talk through, you know, the leak, what it means, and what we might be doing if it is indeed the final opinion of the Supreme Court. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gloria. It's always a pleasure. Likewise. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and it's engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time. <laughs>